0: The only way you're going to get fired because of A.I. is if you didn't embrace it and figure out how to use it to make yourself
1: more productive.
2: Hi, I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about A.I. news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts.
1: And I edit Esther's stories.
2: We're here to talk with tech experts about everything A.I. and ChatGPT.
1: And don't forget about Google
2: Bar. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative A.I. race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean?
1: Yep, we've got it covered. Hey,
2: everyone. Welcome to another Targeting AI episode. Today, we're speaking to Liz Miller, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, an IT research and analyst firm. Before her career as an analyst, Liz spent some part of her career in the marketing and public relations world. She was a media relations manager for Continental Indoor Soccer League and marketing manager for a boxing promotion group which was also owned by Dr. Jerry Buss, owner of the Los Angeles Lakers. She worked for different marketing firms until she moved over to being an analyst in 2019. Lots of sports there, Liz, but thank you so much for joining us on today's show.
0: I think I'm the person that makes, the, it, makes it proof. There's proof out there for anyone who ever wants to work in professional... Uh, attended the oldest all-women's college in the United States of America. Uh, then go work in male-dominated professional sports, uh, that included ring girls at, at one point, uh, a weird stint in CRM where we ignore that, and then professional skincare because all of those things somehow make sense.
1: And I'm a Celtics fan, so I did. I, no I the Lakers reference, but you know, no. we are a Massachusetts company over here, Tech Target, so we want to find <laughs> the Celtics fun. All right. Is it I'm or neutral. Is it
2: Nashua? I, I think it's a New Hampshire company.
0: I'm just going to change it now.
2: so marketing to it like you just briefly like moved over that was a pivot did you work with technology in your previous role as a marketing director and then what made you switch
0: that's a that's a great question you know it's it's funny this is my 2023 marks my 30th year as a marketer it's a very strange thing to be able to say right um, so started my career thinking that I was, you know, I was flack. So as as journalists, you can all appreciate that um, back in the day, Esther won't know this, but Sean. We say flack. Remember, we
1: always call yeah, them flack. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's always flack, right? But you will also remember the days of receiving in the mail. Remember when you used to get the giant mailbag of press releases? And there were those like dutifully folded up paper press releases in an envelope. Yep. I started my career being that intern who used to have to put out all of the papers and
1: machine.
0: Oh yeah. I remember, I can remember the, the awesome day that we bought a fax machine that had groups. Cause then you could put all of the fax numbers into a group and be like, ha. you know, it was, it was very exciting. Uh, but, but I will say, you know, I, I think the commonality in my career has certainly been marketing. And throughout my career, I've seen these waves of technology crash into the marketing function. And as marketing has evolved, arguably technology has evolved, um, you know, sometimes arguably ahead of it. Marketing's had to kind of chase and run after it a little bit. Um, But I have somehow always been involved in technology. I remember my very first job with the Continental Indoor Soccer League. I remember when we had the Internet, which was also called the AOL disk. And we used to slide it into the machine and you'd have to shout. Like, hey guys, I'm going online, because that meant like a phone line went down and you'd hear that. So I le- I would like to say that my the earliest parts of my career were in the earliest parts of social. Uh, and technology has been a common thread throughout. So
1: so how about AI? Like how how much do you spend in your daily job focusing on AI and what <laughs> are your clients and not generative AI, just a, 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 <laughs> Generative AI, as you noted, one of your writings, you attach that to the, the, the end of every other word nowadays. It's
0: Everybody a thing now, yeah. You're Sean GPT. You're Esther yeah, GPT. GPT yeah. I'm Liz GPT. It's fine. And we'll <laughs> talk
1: more about that later. But what are you know? What are your clients? Are they all in frenzy about generative AI, or are they? Yeah. paying attention to regular AI and machine learning and. Other little things or what, what's going on with them? Are they, are they. That's super, a great question. They don't know what to do. They're so excited or.
0: It's a great question because I think that, that, that the answer is a little bit of everything. Right. So um, I think that, so I made the transition into being an analyst um, in 19, in 2019. So about three and a half years ago, almost four years. I think if that if that's the math and um, even then, even when I first started reviewing technologies and working with both the vendors side of the equation, as as well as still with the CMOs and a lot of the buy side and the CXOs and the CDOs that are still our clients today. um, I think that AI was more of that thing that felt just off into the distance that we knew was going to have a substantive impact on how we were able to deliver on all of these great customer experiences that we were all kind of dreaming up at the time. But at but then it was more like ML was the flavor of the day, right? And, and ML has always been a very important part, especially for marketing, because it has always represented that next best decision, the recommendation engine. Um, you know, I think in the early days of commerce, especially flavored by Amazon, that machine learning capacity to look through an individual's history, their behaviors, their signal, and for us to then be able to kind of pick that one little needle out of our commerce haystack and say, this is what you want, right? Like that, that was the nirvana for a really long period of time. Um, and over the course of, the th- of three years, we have really accelerated that so that we have a very deep understanding, I think as a market that not only is ML different from AI, right, that rote machine learning is a very different algorithm and a very, you know, to some degree, a smaller schema of data and a smaller corpus of data than what we need for true AI. That is self-learning, to some degree, self-healing, um, to, to some degree, you know, c- capable of establishing autonomous processes that can then be repeatable and automated, right? Um, so I think that there's, that, that clients are really excited about it, but there's still a persistent nagging feeling. And it's the same feeling that we had in 2019 that we have now. So now it's a lot more urgent. And that's, do we have enough data to make this thing real? Because I think now more than ever, we understand that the model is great and the model is important. But how we train that model, the data that we feed it, can't be limited to just the data we know how to manage or the data we know how used to fit in an Excel spreadsheet, right? We now are looking for these oceans of data. The fact that marketers now freely use the word corpus, I think it's, it's kind of testament to that fact. But I think it really is more now about like the question isn't about do I need AI in my processes? Do I need AI in my marketing function, my solutions? The answer is yes. That answer is yes across the entirety of CX, right? All three horsemen of the apocalypse, sales, service, and marketing. We are all looking for AI applications to help us be more efficient, to help us be more productive, to help our customers be able to engage with us in very different ways. So now the question is, do we have the right data? And are we automating the right processes to make AI truly something that has value on both ends of this dynamic equation, both for our brands and for our buyers.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I remember starting in 2021 and that was still kind of like that blurry line of like, what is AI? What is yeah. ML? Is <laughs> ML AI? Right, right. And, like, and the, that- like the
0: awful Gantt charts, people would be like, you could have one, but it, without the other, but you can't have the other without the one and you just like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah it's so funny but um i guess our next question is what would you say are some of the general use cases or applications of ai and customer experience or moving now into generative ai and customer experience
0: so i think that um it's it's a really exciting time it's a fast moving time i think generative ai has kind of forced It's like that, that like cinder block that gets put on your foot on the drivers, you know, like it like forced us to step on the gas and figure out what AI meant for our organizations. Um, I think specific, like if we start specifically with marketing and then we kind of broaden the lens to CX, I think with marketing, where I'm seeing the really important use cases for marketers to wrap their heads around now, really around new ways that we can interrogate and embrace data. I think for a very long time with marketers, we've kind of been forced to limit what our view of data could be. Data was really a, the stuff that we owned and we could access, right? Or the stuff that we could manage, the things that everyone would let us have access to. And when systems are set up like that, and when data is set up that, like that, fundamentally, you end up in this weird game of like corporate don't touch my button. Right? But because because what happens is like you have all this amazing data, this is customer service, and customer service, is like, whoa, 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 coloring in department. Don't come here, marketers. I, I own CX now and I shall keep all the data. So you know, corporate don't touch my button. And then all of a sudden, sales is like, ha ha, ha. I own revenue because now I'm revenue optimization. Corporate, don't touch my button, right? And everyone kind of ends up in these haunched positions, and we forget fundamentally that all of this data is really intended to be in the service of our customer, not in the service of us, or in the service of our function. And so as we kind of greedily get it into our little fiefdoms, we end up delivering worse experiences. And I think that AI has opened our eyes to a lot of that because AI, if you ask, let's say, an AI-powered or a generative AI-powered segment generator. Lots of, lots of companies have them now right, as part of their marketing automation solutions. If you ask that segment generator, hey, is there another audience that does as much business as who I think my best customer is, but maybe doesn't have the same characteristics of who I consider our best customer to be? And all of a sudden, AI, who does not have the bias of, oh, well, that's customer services data, or, oh, that's is data. They just go look at customer data, and that AI model is turned on to that and says, oh yeah, here's a segment, it's people who live in the Northeast who haven't bought, a per- you know, haven't bought this specific product before, but has all the same intent signals as your best customers, and here are the three things that you can do that have a 90% chance of having them turn into a high qualified lead. All of a sudden, we're like, wait, wait, wait a minute, where did, where did that opportunity come from? And I think that's where marketing is really finding a lot of excitement, is that you can take a real person, a real marketer who is just looking to move that growth needle. You can allow that marketer and empower that marketer to ask a different question without having to know what data fields are called or where did that data come from or was it, you know, was it cleared by the, you can just ask the question and you get an answer. And you can now dream up a new campaign. You can come up with a new strategy that helps that opportunity blossom and grow. That's really exciting. Like that that becomes a game changer for the function of marketing, but it also becomes a game changer for the function of service, of sales, right? We're starting to see these three come together in CX. And I think generative AI and those use cases are doing that. I think we're going to keep seeing those use cases. And I actually think, Esther, it's going to be easier to find the use cases that are least important.
1: Can we stay on AI for a minute? And we, oh, we, yeah. know, we, we know it didn't pop into, we know it didn't just pop onto the scene. Um,
0: right, it's been, uh, been here
1: forever. <laughs> it's been around for a while, right? At least yeah. for four years, right? So what was your, what was the initial reaction of customer service people that you talk with, enterprises, uh, what was their initial reaction to the, the sudden wild popularity of ChatGPT and Google Bard and whatever else, from Cohere and Anthropic and all that stuff Were they suddenly surprised? Did they have a hard time assimilating what to do with it? Or what what was their their Um, first
0: reaction? Okay, so it's funny, because specific to that market and customer service, customer service found a potato in the hallway and that potato had the letters C and X written on the hot potato. And they picked it up they're like, someone left a hot potato in the hallway. We love this potato. We're gonna start calling ourselves CX. I love your analogies. It, it it gives me heartache and headache every single time I think about it, right? Because at the end of the day, marketing did the same thing about 10 years ago. Like Sean, you'll remember this, right? Remember when marketers were running around the hallways like, I own CX because I own every single experience. CX CMO killed CRM.
1: CRM. CX killed CRM. Nobody thought oh, about
0: CRM. Yeah. CX, CX killed CRM. CX tried to get every CMO fired. Right, And so everyone, we're like, no, like sales walked by and we're like, uh-uh, not, nope, not touching that sucker. But all of a sudden, everyone in the contact center was like, potato, like, no, put it down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the reality is, I think in the contact center, generative AI unlocked a whole lot of opportunity. Because if there is one location in our business today where customer voice is stuck in this little tiny can, it's the contact center. And there's two reasons why, A, the contact center doesn't want to let go of it because they they understand that's their power, right? That's, that is that they are the front line. They are literally the front line for 90% of every single customer experience journey, right? They are the ones that get the brunt of it. But no other department has really known how to untap that data until now, unlocking things like large language models right? Because you can now take all of these phone calls. And though that transcribed to text can happen in an instant, the minute the caller hangs up the phone, all of a sudden your systems can start to analyze what is that high fidelity signal? What could that customer's next opportunity be? But if we don't let it out of the contact center, it just becomes another fight of data, right? What generative AI is doing is really kind of unlocking that. So now marketing can pull that information in. And more importantly, we can start to right-size. And Sean, you just said something, right? Like CX killed CRM. Yes, but it's funny what AI is going to do. Because what AI has started to do is right-size CRM and right-size CDP. So that organizations start to look realistically at what these tools need to be. Right? If CRM was intended to be the relationship management view of how our sales teams, right, engage with those people buying. The CDP, the customer data platform, is intended to be that spot where all of the actions that our customers can take, all the ways that they might engage with our digital products, and get, all centralizes, right? So that means information from CRM, information from the contact center, all comes into the customer data platform and can now enrich all of the front lines of the deployments of customer experience, right? So it's starting to right size. I think people are starting to realize, hey, wait a minute, a CDP is not in fact a marketing toy for marketing things. It is that repository, that data lake for customer data and customer experience. And in the contact center, they're realizing, wow, I don't just have to be measured on things like call deflection. I actually do have a stake in customer experience improvement and how the sentiment and the voice of the customer then disseminates through the rest of the organization, how the intelligence about that conversation disseminates through the organization. So I think it's bringing a whole lot of strategy and strategic focus into the contact center and it's forcing all of these little fiefdoms of CX to kind of wake up and not only partner more intentionally with each other, but to do it quickly.
2: That's interesting because A lot of people would think when it comes to generative AI, especially when it first started, this idea is, oh no, it's going to take yeah, our jobs no, no, no. <laughs> So what do you think about that? Is it going to take the jobs away?
0: The only way you're going to get fired because of AI is if you didn't embrace it and figure out how to use it to make yourself more productive, right? Like there's, the, the reality is like, so, um, the, the, the kind folks at Adobe were very nice and got me in as uh, on the beta of Adobe Firefly, which, of course, is the generative AI that is in the, you know, the large diffusion model and uh, you know, with, with all of the asset creation. And, and here's the thing I learned playing with Adobe Firefly. And it's an amazing tool. Like, do not get me wrong. And I've played with other ones here. You I've know, played with Dolly, played with a lot of them. Graphic designers, I'm here to tell you right now, no one's coming for your job. Because the ability for AI to create the perfect image is dependent on the person writing the brief writing the perfect brief. And if anyone's ever worked in a creative art department before, they know no one's ever written the perfect brief. In fact, if you read the first brief that was given and then you look at the graphic or the image, the asset that was delivered, and just, you don't know anything in the middle. You'd be like, you this no, is brief prompt. Of
1: Wait, is brief a prompt? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you think
0: about, yeah, so, but think about it, right? When, when you go and ask your creative team for the perfect image that goes along with an article, right? You are going to say, this is what I want. In, in the before times, you know, December, yes. um, you would have done that and yes. you would have gotten an image and you would have gone like, no, I needed to do this more. Or no, I want someone to be in a green dress or no, I, I my favorite, I want the image to pop more. Yes. Right. So now imagine that that request is now a prompt going into an AI engine. People haven't changed what they're asking for, right? They have to refine. They have to keep going back. They have to go back and say, no, I want that person to be wearing green. No, I don't want them to be actually green. I want them to be in a green sweater, but with a white shirt. In the same way we've had to learn how to be better at asking creatives for assets, we also have to be better about architecting our prompts. It's, it's literally asking people to be prompt engineers who were never meant to be prompt engineers, right? And that's what like the early learnings of generated AI have been. I, I think that the reality is, is that what happens, like let's just be pragmatic about it for just a moment. Um, everyone has introduced some type of either subject line optimization or or email body recommendation so you can write the body of an email, right? And this is great, especially like in sales functions because you could look at that sales record You could, and the seller can just say, hey, AI, craft the response to this To you know, and the goal is to set up a meeting. And so AI can then scan through all the best of the best emails that have ever gotten the most responses and they can put in everything from those buttons to set up calendars, they can have workflows to follow up it's a great process, right? It's trained on the most effective emails that generate a response to, you know, it predicts and it generates. Marketing is a little different though, right? Because we can predict, we can look at all of these emails and say, oh, this was the very best email. It got the most response. But then when do we hit that point in critical mass when every single email now sounds exactly the same? And we're going to start doing the same exact thing that we've been doing for the last, 20 years when it comes that's to technology. the
1: echo chamber that's the generative ai echo chamber
0: it, exactly right so it's the the capacity for us to keep feeding new and keep feeding better and redefining what better and good is that becomes the art form to ai but the baseline of that will always require a really smart marketer somewhere saying hey wait a minute i'm gonna try something new And I'm going to write this in a completely different way, or I'm going to try something completely different. And I think at the end of the day, that's what gets me most excited about AI is because it takes all of the mundane. It takes me having to sit there in front of a spreadsheet, fixing all the data, (laughs) making sure all the data is clean, making sure all of my assets have been meta tagged properly. It takes the mundane off of my plate. And it allows me, it gives me the freedom and the breathing room To sit back and say, yeah, you know what? I know that email has been effective 10 times, but you know what? What if I tried it this way? It's an open glide path now to give us the time to think of what that this way is. We can come up with completely different copy. And if it fails miserably, is it really any better or worse than the 82% of failures that emails delivers today? Right. So I think AI is giving us a real uh, it's giving us some empowerment in marketing that we haven't had in a little while. Right. It's it's, it's opening up our day to actually be really good at what we're really good at.
2: I kind of understand that aspect of it. Right. So it gives the marketer still needs to go back and fine tune the prompt. Right. But what if you're not a marketer? Right. You know, yeah. is that you still the ai the prompt is absolutely still, it's not the really the concern It's was being generated that's the concern right? the
0: prompt isn't the concern the data is the concern and the output's the concern right so i think that if we split this into like i'm a marketer you know that's my nine to five but like outside of work i'm not in theory right so am i comfortable with ai generating potential images of my daughter in different clothes because I wanted to have her try on different outfits in a commerce situation. Um, My answer is no, I'm not really comfortable with that, right? Because I am one of those people that likes to read all the fine print and I don't want someone else owning pictures of my daughter, you know? So I I think that the, the two sides of AI become really, really interesting because as a consumer and as a person, I love the idea that AI is going to make my life easier. It's going to give me some of that value back. It gives me some of that time back. It might save me some time. It might save me some money. But I don't like the idea, and I'm not willing to just blindly wander into a world where I'm not fully aware of who's involved with my touch points and my experiences and engagements. And I think... We're quickly getting to that. We're quickly getting to that point where people are hyper aware of not only what privacy means for them, but what their data and that their data isn't just what they've entered into a form, but their data is their face, right? Like we didn't have to think about that before. You don't have to think about the fact that your face is data now, but now it is. So what's that currency? What's that exchange rate that you're willing to give of you can have this side of my face if you give me this, 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 and this. Like, what's that exchange rate for people? And I think people are starting to calculate that now.
1: Okay, so um, Liz, uh, I want to bring up digital assistants. You just recently yeah. asked her about digital assistants, and I just edited that story. It was great. It's going to go live next couple of days. But since that, I, I've heard that some digital assistants now even have their own digital assistants. Oh yeah, yeah. There's so many digital assistants, right? <laughs> so that was my joke. So, but. I like that. So anyway, right? spawned all these digital assistants that have yeah. infused with generative AI, right? And so what what makes an actually a good digital assistant, right? What what makes a good one? I mean, we had Ooh. some ones that didn't work all that well, like Siri and uh, Alexa works okay. And don't now we it. have do Don't say it too loud.
0: They're listening. Like, Sean, oh, they're gonna start ordering, ordering things now. Garden.
1: They can't get in here. They <laughs> I have a garden. They can't get into the, this podcast. <laughs> No, I'm an Apple person, but Siri is I like it, it doesn't TV. understand me. Teams understands. <laughs> right. doesn't right. understand But it. but
0: you have just walked into the the perfect human experiment of what is the difference between ML and what is the difference between AI? What is the difference between something that is just trained to listen and then predict? the next five things that not only you want to do, but would be right for you to do, right? Um, oh, you, you know, if, if I want to listen to songs by Black, I can't say it too loud, my sentient home is going to start responding to me in the middle of this thing, right? So if I wanted to listen to songs that, yeah. by a certain, you know, from Perplexa, yeah. But it it is that, it's that ML that's trained to hear and then regurgitate, as opposed to the AI that's like, hey, you know, I'm I'm sitting here on your Outlook. I'm just this funny little button that's sitting over in the corner where Clippy used to live, you know. And hey, I've noticed that these four emails that you've sent to these prospects, seller, you know, person in sales who needs to make their quota. These were really good emails. You should send them to these three people who you haven't followed up with in a while. Right? Like that level of a tap, that level of a nudge that makes an individual seller more productive, more successful. That's where you start to see the light bulb moment go off. Like that's the valuable digital assistant. The digital assistant that needs the intern, like we have to talk about that. Like those, that's a problem, right? Like if I need 19 actual live interns to corral my digital assistant, I have created a really, really like that's like monster level stuff there, right? <clears throat> and I and I think we're definitely seeing that. We're seeing that in a lot of cases. But I think that where we start to see things be, you know, like I think Microsoft's Copilot is a really good example. I think that you know, that little nudge, the little, hey, we know that you live in Outlook, so you know, we're going to live here too with you. And we're going to live here with some really important advice. You know, Salesforce, in a lot of the things that they're doing, they're they're going to be in the pane of glass in which this seller likes to be in. Adobe, name a solution today that has generative AI, like they're making the right and smart steps about existing in these small moments and these little bites that are really understandable and really accessible and are really helpful and have immediate impact, whether it is, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, people define value in one of three ways. It's either something that saves them time, it's something that saves them money, or it's something that brings something back into their lives, right? And that could be joy, that could be fun, that could be laughter, that could be improvement in work, that could be a bonus, right? People are very personal about how they like, define that last one. It's the saves me time, saves me money. Those are the two that are the easiest to apply these use cases for AI on because you know exactly how so- it can save someone time, right? You know exactly how something can save them money. So when you start to chip away those small use cases and apply AI in that really meaningful way, that's where we're starting to see people be like, okay, like maybe, maybe it is here to help me. Maybe it isn't here to take my job. And I think that's the peanut butter and chocolate moment.
2: Ooh, peanut butter and, yeah, and right.
0: chocolate. Yeah, right. Who's hungry? Who needs a snack? Yeah.
2: I think we all do. But speaking of Salesforce, you wrote about, uh, you wrote a post about um movie, what movie gets wrong and Salesforce yeah. gets right uh, about AI. Can you speak a little about what you mean and expand a little bit yeah. on your AI analogy? You bet. You're one of my many analogies. Um,
0: so, The vast majority of us got our education about what AI could be through movies, through Hollywood, right? Um, Hell 9000, right? It's that sinister red eye that through the entire movie of Space Odyssey sits there and is, you know, it's been programmed to help all of the people on the ship. It keeps some people asleep. It makes sure some people are awake. It keeps people on schedule. It keeps record of everyone's work. It is there to be the ultimate assistant on this massive odyssey into space. Um, It understands language. It understands languages. It also reads lips. That's the thing that Frank didn't realize, was that Hal could read lips. And so when they all started thinking that Hal was malfunctioning, right, and oh, something's wrong with Hal, we've got to shut Hal down. Hal was given one directive. Don't let this mission fail. Whatever you do, eliminate anything that's going to actually make this mission fail. And all of a sudden, Hal comes to the realization, because it's sentient, thank you, Hollywood, that people were the problem. So it jettisoned Frank out, right? And so what does Dave want to do? Dave wants to go get his friend Frank. And he says, Hal, in the most iconic lines in movie lore, Hal opened the pod bay doors and Hal responds in the coolest, most sinister, top movie villain billing way. I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. It takes over. Hal takes over. And that becomes our foundation of what AI could be. So when people start to talk about things like hallucinations, when people start to talk about things like, well, it's not getting the prediction right, or is it becoming sentient? In the back of our minds, and it's just psychologically, we can't help ourselves. In the back of our minds, if you close your eyes and you, you, you hear the phrase, that AI became sentient. In the back of your mind, you're picturing a red eye and you're picturing some dude frozen, floating in space. right? And you're like, oh, snap. Is ChatGPT gonna open the pod bay doors? Because right? like, that, that becomes our mental model for what AI is. That's a problem. That was Hollywood. It was a movie. They wrote an amazing villain, right? It was this incredible villain that no one could comprehend because how could a computer that just went from the size of a room, right, in that day and age, it went from the size of a room to something that could sit on your desktop to something that could go to space. How could that thing be smart, understand, read lips, formulate a plot, murder someone, right? How could it possibly do that? It can't right? (laughs) Because that's Hollywood. It was Hollywood. In real life, we feed it the data. We are feeding it its bias. We are feeding it all of the things. We are crafting the model. We are crafting the data sets. We're But still, when we talk about it, in the back of our minds, psychologically, we can't get that red eyeball out of our heads. And so my challenge to everyone is think of a different movie. Like if we really need AI to be like something in a movie, think of something else, right? And there's this moment, if you watch the movie Devil Wears Prada, right? Meryl Streep is standing there at the gala. People are walking up to her. And what does her assistant, Andy, do? Just leans very casually in and gives Meryl Streep's character, you know, the the witch of all witches gives her the name, the last time she saw him, a little information about his wife, oh, you've got two kids, just whispers innocuously so that no one else can see the most critical information so that Meryl Streep's character can throw open her arms and say, oh, my goodness, it's so wonderful to see you. That little whisper, that's the AI we all want and need. Right? We all want Andy standing behind us whispering like that customer is your best customer and they just bought a lot of stuff. They're walking straight to you. Oh my God, don't let them say anything for, right? We want to be Meryl Streep in customer service, where when we see that phone number and we see that customer's record pop up onto our agent dashboard, we can answer that phone and be like, oh my gosh, Esther how are you you are one of our very best customers are you enjoying the shoes that you just bought please tell me there's nothing wrong with the pants you just bought it disarms it it changes the dynamic of the relationship so instead of thinking about like ai is here to kill you you know what salesforce has done with a lot of its introduction especially around einstein studio has been to say to people listen you bring the models in you bring the data in But, like, let's start to act and roll out AI in a way that gives every person in your organization, even if you are a small business, the capacity to have Andy just sitting right behind our left shoulder, ready to whisper that most important information just right in our ear. You know, I would argue it's the same thing like Microsoft has done with Copilot. Right? These, are, these are two organizations that very much believe that you'll, you'll hear a lot, and, and to, you know, arguably Oracle, SAP, everyone kind of has, has adopted this language of human in the loop. You're going to be, see very few pitches that don't you human in the loop. And it's because there's this fallacy that AI was going to take everything over, when in reality, what AI needed to do was take over the stuff that we did not have the capacity to do in the time that we had to do it manage all the data, aggregate all the data, harmonize all the data, normalize all the data. AI picks up where human capacity leaves off, but it should come right back to the human, to the person, so that we know, hey, thank you, Andy, who just whispered information in my ear. I now can know because of my skill and who I am and what I've done, I now know how to translate that into an experience or an engagement. And I think that's where we're starting to see AI take shape. And, And that's what I meant by that analogy of like, there's nothing wrong with HAL 9000 it's a great villain it is a great villain i mean there is nothing more chilling than hearing a computer say oh i'm sorry i can't stop me from killing you you know it's like it horrifying <laughs> and it like just blew someone out okay so movie. i grew
1: up with that movie i, I, I Esther, right? if, uh, if you haven't I, I seen I, it like
0: think. sean you know what i mean right? i do like,
1: and i always thought ai was evil until i started to learn right? otherwise until pretty recently but um, and then it became evil again all of a sudden. It became good and then it became evil. And now they'll realize it's probably mostly what you make it.
0: Yeah, like, exactly, right. And like because that's a funny thing is when you as an adult, when you go back and look at Space Odyssey and you realize or if you read the book, the funny thing is is that people trained the machine to think in absolutes, right? People trained how to not let anything get in its way that would derail the mission. And they were like, yep, people derailed the mission. All right, Off can we go head. back to
1: Salesforce? I just want to go back to Salesforce with the next question. Yeah, so we yeah. have Einstein Trust letter and they say, oh, you can trust us, right? But okay, <laughs> first of all, can you explain what it is? And also, can enterprises really trust it? Where, where's the proof that they can trust Einstein Trust, Larry? Yeah,
0: that's, it's a great question. And, and if I'm gonna be super honest, um, I, have a, I have a lot of hope that we're gonna be able to trust it, but I don't know. I can't definitively say, yeah, absolutely, 100%, without question, we can trust the trust layer. I'm not there yet, in fairness. Um, but I think their intentions are good. Um, so I, I, I think that that, you know, that gives me a lot of hope and gives me that opportunity to sit back and see what happens. Um, what, so when they start to look at Einstein AI and AI Studio, um, the promise that SAP, sorry, the promise that Salesforce, pardon me, is making here is bring your own model, right? Um, Salesforce about a year and a half ago, even not two years ago, kind of, you know, Mark Benioff made a pretty big statement that he realized we're not in this by ourselves and we can't go this alone. It was kind of that moment when the, the doors opened and it was like, hey, partners, come in one and all. We're not going to be the only thing in a stack so let's be an open environment and let's have everybody come to this party. And so I think they've started their AI strategy or at least this renewed AI strategy because in fairness, Salesforce has been working with AI for quite some time, certainly with Einstein for quite some time. Um, and so you know, this, you know this recent incarnation is really the strategy of bring your own model. But it's also about one model isn't the only thing you need, right? It's this understanding that Based on the context of the prompt, the context of the situation and the output, and what it is that you not only as a customer are trying to achieve, but what you are as a business trying to achieve, that there may be a better model for each individual situation. So whether you are going to use, say, Salesforce's proprietary LLM, whether you want to tap into OpenAI, whether you want to tap into any number of the models that are out there, or... If your data science team for large enterprises who have the luxury of a data science team and and prompt engineers and model engineers and architects, you've been working in something in SageMaker. You've been working in something in Vertex, right? You have been working on these models that are specific to not just your industry, but to you, to your brand and your organization. Why should you be limited? to only work with those over there, you can bring that in, and now everything that is in Salesforce and everything that your organization has within your Salesforce instance becomes part of your data corpus, right? So it's now not separating those things and, and leaving that in analytics outside of the wall. So I think it's a smart strategy. The trust layer is such that it it is it is, it's, what they claim it's able to do is ground and materially check that the data that is, and the prompts are really just going through these models, that your data does not reside and then stay in these models. So it really is a digital safety and a digital privacy um, play as well and conversation there as well. So especially for organizations that are very concerned about having their proprietary data and their customer's data aid in training these large public models, this is Salesforce's way of saying, no, we've actually put abstraction layers in there to ensure that that does not happen. That it's just really just your prompt that's moving through in a matter of seconds and, and your data is not actually moving there or a copy does not, now, not reside there. So I think they took a very intentional and proactive approach to ensure that their promise of data um, resilience, but also data responsibility was something that also played through across these large language models and these large data sets um, that you know that that AI really relies okay. on. So
1: we spoke to your colleague Don Fluckinger about the same topic. He, we on yeah. a podcast with him, and he has the same view as you about Salesforce and um, selling trust as is an integral part of trust and safety is yeah. part of the brand now.
0: Yeah, um, and, and I think Don's right. I mean, I think Don. Listen, I I'd be willing to bet that Don was far more curmudgeonly than I was. In all of that, and, and I love him for it. Um, well, let's yeah, have that yeah, on yeah, the record. Yeah, but but you know, I think and I think you know, interestingly, I think Don and I also. I mean, Don and I were sitting there front row when Genie was first unveiled, right? And it was this promise of like, oh, this massive heaps of data, and I mean, both of us at one point looked at each other and were like, and that's going to stay protected. How? Like. Like, does this not feel a little precarious? And so I think, that, I think that Salesforce felt that. I think Salesforce, well, they probably felt it definitely from the two of us staring at everybody cross-eyed. But I also think that Salesforce has been hearing its customers saying, listen, it's not just about privacy and it's not just about security. It's about brand security and that awareness that every time we are asking this prompt, every time we are tapping into AI, are we also risking our reputation with our customers? And there's a willingness to not want to do that, and I think Salesforce is trying to step up to that. Uh, you know, I think you're 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 also seeing that in a lot of other, um, you know, in a lot of other solutions. I'm seeing this kind of trust factor, this abstraction layer, um, you know, this this ability to not only bring your own model, but then to also opt out of models and make sure that your model isn't training larger models. It's something that a lot of organizations are talking about and putting into place. Um, Adobe being one that comes to mind. Um, You know, listen, stay tuned. You're going to hear a lot from Adobe coming up in this next quarter and certainly as we start leading into Adobe Max about a lot of the promises that they made in March around Adobe Summit with the introduction of their project Firefly. Um, And they were very committed to, listen, we are using stock imagery, but we are also looking at a pathway so that creators, whether they are using AI or whether they are creating the good old-fashioned way, that the creators find a path to monetization and that they have specific consents and that they have specific controls that they can have over their content that goes and trains these models. So I think you're going to start to see a lot more conversation around not just ethical AI, but really what does it mean to have a trusted trustworthy AI that you're willing to hang your brand reputation on?
2: So I want to pivot a little bit um, because speaking of trust, <laughs> Twitter, right? Everybody. Now known as X, uh, I you use the platform. <laughs>
0: <I> can't. <laughs> what do you think
2: uh, will become of the platform now that Mux hones it? Elon Musk said and what does AI? What role does AI have to play? Um, well, that, the, the AI question is probably the
0: easiest question to ask in, in all of that. Um, in that, Elon Musk is funding and owns his own AI company, right? So he has a vested interest in coming up with his own answer to. The dangers of AI. So I tend to look at I tend to look at when every time Elon Musk stands on top of a mountain and shouts that's dangerous, I then immediately have to go and figure out what company he owns that will solve that danger because it's usually some part of the equation. Um, do I think he's hundred percent wrong? No. Do I think he's hundred percent right? No. I'm not. Like I don't have an Elon Musk fan club T-shirt laying around. Um, but <clears throat> I think that. I think that the Twitter or the X Corp question boils down to realistically and in a way that is not self-serving to one billionaire and one billionaire only, what is an everything app? And I've yet to hear a clear articulation of that. Um, there have been some cute little, well, an everything app is everything. You know, psh, uh, like, mm. I'm a marketer. Please do not try to play that one on me. Like oh, like, oh, come on. You know, the reason why a lot of everything apps that have come before have not become everything, especially in the U.S., is that we are a little bit of a crusty, cynical people. Um, you know, we were one of the last nations and countries to fully embrace this thing called mobile data. It wasn't until the iPhone came out that we were like, <gasps> We can have data on our phones. These can be like mini computers. Like meanwhile, all of Asia was already like waiting for 5G in 2006, right? So we are not exactly early adopters of things. So I, you know, I, I think that, like I said, when the acquisition first happened, the adults in charge, whether that's Linda Yacarino whether that's Elon Musk, whoever is going to be the adult in charge, needs to have a very crisp and clear articulation of the business, what? and then the consumer what, right? What's the product, but what's the business value? And those are two very different things. Um, I have yet to hear a clear articulation of either of those things. Telling me that you're a platform for free speech basically means the same thing as saying, my newspaper's printed on paper. Like, okay, congratulations, like, good for you. Like, tell me more, right? I, I need to have a better understanding of, why I want to, as someone who posts a lot of content on Twitter, why do I still want to do that? Why are these conversations that I want to have? I don't want to go yell at people in a town square. I I don't want to go and have to defend every single thing that I might be thinking or saying every single moment I think or say it. So for me, the value proposition is eroding very quickly. If you're an advertising platform, and that's your business, that your business, how you make money, is predominantly through media, It's a dying platform and we're just kind of waiting around for it to take its last gasps, right? Because it's simply not providing an advertising, a safe advertising environment for any advertiser to be willing to invest that kind of money for a sustainable business product.
1: Well, I'm still going to follow you, though, no matter what.
0: Okay, still follow me. That'd be awesome. I will still post smart and we'll go down right together. Anymore. We'll all go
1: down together. We'll <laughs> all go down to the place. We can all go to threats. We went to threats right. and that lasted two weeks. And then <laughs> uh, we went right. to Mastodon and that lasted one week. um
0: well, I, could, I still couldn't figure out half a Mastodon. So, I mean, the because fact it's that you the federated out a federated.
1: It's right. a federated disaster. This uh, server goes down, that server goes yeah. down. So we're stuck with with stuck with X for right now.
0: We're stuck with X for right now, but it is providing to, it is providing a whole lot of humor for my branding brain yeah. cuz yeah. it's it's like if anyone has ever wanted to know what it's like working in the Silicon Valley for an entrepreneur Welcome to what's happening to Twitter, where it's like someone just wakes up on a Sunday morning. It's like I think I want to be called X now. Here's my logo. I bought it off a of ninety nine design. Like what just happened? Like I, I woke up and I was like, I, I've lived this story before. Actually, I know, I know exactly what's about to happen, and so it has been a very funny journey to watch. But in all seriousness, I think that where people are getting a front row seat in all the bad that can happen when we allow, whether it's bots or AI or the randomness of the worst in humanity to run amok. Some of it is happening live and you know in Memorex on X, right? Because um, when you don't have, like I know that having those types of moderation and controls feels like it's stifling free speech. It's also making sure that things like Child exploit, yeah, you, know, you know, child exploitation and horrific acts against people and humanity are slowed down a bit. We're not gonna stop them, but you can sure put a lot of speed bumps in the road. And there are very few people other than well, people who like to exploit children who would object to slowing down predators of children, right? So I you know, I think that in our bluster to define this holy grail known as free speech, we've kind of forgotten that, you know, sometimes free speech feels really mean, and it feels really ugly, and it feels really dirty. And some people don't, some people want it, but they just don't want to be witness to it. And I think that that's the problem that Elon Musk is going to run into is that it's, it takes a certain, it takes a certain person to want to stand at the fire hose of free speech all day long.
1: So on the, thank you, Liz. On that Elon Musk note, because he—that's he, th- the name you attach to everything. After uh, G- Gen AI, you say Elon yeah. did this. <laughs> because, you know, it, it, you know, party conversations always yeah. these two yeah. topics. Chicken yeah.
0: games. Here we go.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, and thank thank you. this Liz, is hilarious. I love it. Stories. Yeah, check out Liz's stories on Constellation Research. You're a really good writer too, Liz. Oh, and, thank uh, you. And, and traverse with her on X for the time being. And we will okay. speak to you next time.
0: It was great talking to you guys. Thank
1: Bye-bye. You.
2: Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to share on your favorite social media platform and leave a review. For more on today's topic, please check out the TechTarget News website.